This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Don Arga, co-director of The Bond, a four-part wildlife series now streaming on Discovery+. Plus. The Bond examines the profound singular animal-human connection forged amongst four folks and critters from disparate backgrounds and regions across the world. For example, Ray Harvey operates a kangaroo sanctuary in Australia where most of the animals are rehabilitated then released while retaining the freedom to come and go from the facility. One kangaroo, Kanku, has become a permanent resident developing an exceptionally close, powerful relationship with Harvey. Meanwhile, in the northeast of the U.S., the Bond profiles Jay Sargent, a Rhode Island riding instructor, who more than two decades ago went on a vacation with her husband to Kirk, Turks and Caicos. While there, she befriended a bottlenosed dolphin named Jojo, a friendship that has continued to this day and deepened, even as Sargent has faced major medical struggles. These represent just two of the four segments, each about 45 minutes long, and all co-directed by Argot and partner Sheena uh, and Joyce. Their company's extensive credits include The Art of the Steel, two episodes of Netflix, Cat People. To find out more about the bond and the distinctive relationship depicted in it, including a goat and a cheetah, when I speak with Don Arga in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Kirsten Peak of the Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, to discuss their operation rescuing 4,000 beagles, removing them from a facility in Virginia. The beagles were being bred and sold to laboratories that conduct animal experimentation. We'll hear about this major project and how we might help a little bit later on in the show. Right now, though, let's discuss some extraordinary relationships forged between humans and animals and the bond, the streaming series that examines four such relationships with the co-director of the bond, Don Argot. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663. Emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Don Argot on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Don. Hey, how are you, man? Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, joining us on the show today. So uh, congratulations on the bond, which we'll certainly obviously address in uh, some detail in a moment or two. But I'd first like to discuss some of your other films. In fact, maybe we could actually just travel further back a little bit. I'm always interested how a documentary filmmaker kind of gets started and, and what pulls them into it. So how did, how did you get your start? Um, it's funny. I actually I went to, um, to school in 1993, uh, basically at the Art Institute of Philadelphia, and... Um, the program that they had at the time was uh, the music video and business program. So it was a little bit of like, you know, a little, little of everything of some of my interests. Obviously I came in, uh, you know, uh, interested in filmmaking, but I was also grew up a musician. So thought that, that maybe there would be a career for me. And maybe if I wasn't going to be in bands as a career, then maybe like, you know, some, some part of the music business, whether that was in the engineering side or whatever. Uh, and, you know, once I went to school, I really kind of fell in love, like full full steam ahead with, with filmmaking and my interest in like doing audio engineering and things like that were just not as, uh, just didn't have as much of a desire for it because, you know, filmmaking, photography and, you know, uh, editing, I was just really taken by it. So at that point, I really, really immersed myself in, you know, like, you know, film history and, and, you know, really watching a lot of films. And again, this is the early nineties. So, you know, it's always for context in the times now that everything is so uh, easily accessible at the time, you still had to like seek things out and really kind of, you know, find your own way. And uh, I remember early on in my filmmaking, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, being, being in school, uh, I saw a documentary called American Movie by a filmmaker named Chris Smith, and the, the film honestly just changed my my perception of what documentaries were uh, up until that point. You know, documentaries weren't uh, a huge part of my life. You know, I certainly in high school, you know, remember seeing like Nanook of the North and things like that, but documentaries in my mind at that point were always like very kind of, you know, kind of 
boring and <laughs> pedantic and uh it wasn't anything that was like i was super interested in and then seeing american movie which is about uh you know a filmmaker trying to make a movie uh who and it's just a it's a really a film about dreams it's a film about kind of following your passion and to me it, it reframed uh what documentaries could be and at that point i really kind of like you know uh, was a bit sing single focused i was very uh just very interested in in documentary films so i started to watch more documentaries uh from the 60s obviously the Maisel brothers and uh great gardens things like that like so i re really started to like educate myself on you know what documentaries like could be and that was the journey that i went on and that was the thing that kind of like really set me off and then you know uh years later i ended up making my first documentary which is a film called rock school uh about this uh school here in philadelphia called the paul green school of rock music which which is very much based on the jack black movie yeah rock so it was, um and it was you know we were making our film at the right as that film was being made too and of course that film had come out and been very successful and i think in turn helped the interest for our the real life school of rock the film that we were making uh it really helped raise the profile of, of that and we got it into a film festival at the los angeles film festival and we sold it and that became our first you know kind of big stepping stone into the business wow well that sounds cool and it sounds like really the uh although you're already on that path that once you saw american movie like you were totally cemented into documentaries and said hey if this is how they can be I'm even more in than I was five minutes ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a game changer for me. And so this may then seem like kind of a rhetorical question, but was there along the path, even after you kind of locked in and made School of Rock, et cetera, was there, has there been at any point of flirtation with making narrative feature scripted films or were you always like, absolutely. hey. We, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the thing that got me into, you know, filmmaking in general. Like when I, before I went to decide to go to film school, I was watching like Goodfellas and, you know, Scorsese films. And, you know, that was kind of the early nineties was, you know, kind of the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino era. So it was yeah. a really exciting time where like independent film and like films that were, you know, being made outside the studio system, quote unquote, uh, there was like just some unique stuff happening. And I was obviously t very taken with that. So I think like I started as like, like, wanting to be a cinematographer that was the thing that like i was all i was like obsessed with mm. like, visuals and framing and lighting and things like that yeah and, and over time uh you know I, I i came to realize that you know i wanted more control over just being the guy shooting i also wanted to help tell the story so i kind of like started being like a dp director type and you know i i think that really helped me uh you know use both both of my passions at that time, which were like, you know, I, I really love storytelling and I love great characters, but I also like the idea of like having control over the image and things like that. So yeah. it was a, a perfect marriage. Um, but we actually did do a, a narrative film. We did a romantic comedy um, a few years back called Slow Learners. So we got to work with uh, incredible improv actors uh, and we kind of approached it in a documentary spirit. You know, mm, improv mm -hmm. acting, it's, it was, we kind of like had a, a script that wasn't, you know, incredible, and we knew that we can punch the material up and working with really talented improv actors, you know, from like Saturday Night Live and things like that. It was giving them the space, which is frankly what we do in making documentaries is like, yeah. you know, we set up what the scene is going to be. I mean, obviously things just don't happen. You know, we there's a little bit of like behind the scenes maneuvering to make you know like why are we out on a boat you know like we had we had to make that happen but then once you're you're in the environment you know then you just kind of you know capture it and and be and and try to be as unobtrusive as possible but knowing that if you're not getting the content you need to like throw questions out and like try to get them to where you feel like they should be going and, and talking about whatever the issue is you know so with the slow learners experience do you think that's something you'll circle back to or are you still pretty much firmly in the uh documentary camp no, very very much so and and like we, we've been very fortunate in the past few years we did a film uh called framing john delorean in which it's a documentary about john delorean but the way in was all these failed narrative Hollywood scripts of the Dorian story that, like, people weren't 
weren't able to kind of get made. And we worked with, uh, we ended up casting Alec Baldwin to play our, our John DeLorean in these reenactments that we used in the, you know, in the documentary. So it, it's just something that we've flirted with and have been actually, uh, you know, kind of, you know, working in that space of like blurring the lines between yeah. filmmaking and documentary. So it's, it's been very cool. And we did another film or another 10 part documentary series. That's actually on Roku right now called Slugfest, in which it's like the history between Marvel comics and DC comics. Oh, and we great. A lot of like, uh, actors that played, you know, within the Marvel and DC universes to play the real comic book creators like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and things that like we work with. Ray Wise from Twin Peaks, who plays Jack Kirby, who's like like strikingly like very uh, like a doppelganger for uh, Jack Kirby. So that was a fun thing to do. So oh, yeah. I feel like it was a way to challenge ourselves in the documentary form because you know there there's obviously a lot more emphasis and excitement about documentaries now than there ever were. Certainly more than when we started out. You know, in the early 2000s, right. documentaries, you know, we couldn't get arrested making docu- documentaries early on. And now it's like, you know, everybody and their mom is wants a documentary. documentary. So, yeah. So it's so it's been interesting to see how the industry and, and how the, uh, per, you know, the perceptions in general about even documentaries have changed over the past two decades. Uh, but for us, we're always looking to, well, how can we challenge ourselves with this story? And what, what, what's a more interesting way to tell this story outside of like the traditional like you know talking head and interview and archive and all that kind of stuff so, yeah you know we're, we're always trying to push ourselves as well yeah well it sounds like you've got such a great grounding and so well trained and, and initially we're, we're aspiring to be a cinematographer so you've got everything down to make a documentary but like anybody that's kind of got a restless creative spirit is like now looking for how you can play around with that and it's all, it almost sounds like as some of these other projects have come together you just mentioned that you kind of made your own American movie in, in, in a sense <laughs> right just sort of playing with the form and uh, and making things so the next filmmaker coming up behind you will say hey I really like Framing John DeLorean, or I like the exactly. Slugfest, or whatever. Yeah, that's the, that's the beauty of like you know being in this business, and and really we are all kind of like we are peers, and we're all influencing each other, and you never know like what work you put out into the world. You know, like for me, like watching American movie at that moment in my life was such a huge thing for me. Yeah, it was such a pivotal moment, and you know, hopefully, you know, with the work that we do, you know, whoever if if they watch something that we've done uh, that gives them that same inspiration. Like a great, really surreal moment for me early on in my career was after we made The Art of the Steel, which was our third film, Chris Smith reached out to me and to tell me how th- that it was one of his favorite documentaries. That he oh, did. wow. And it was a total kind of insane full circle moment for me. And I was like, dude, you have no idea. Like, you're, you're the reason, frankly, that, like, you saw The Art of the Steel, because if it wasn't for American Movie, I don't know that I would be in this position making documentaries. So it was really beautiful. Oh, that's great. Wow. And, and that, those are the kinds of things that happen. You know? Yeah, no, that's great. When you hear from the actual inspiration for what you do, the way you do it, that, that it's hard to imagine something more powerful than that. So that's fantastic. Yeah, that's wow. a really, really big moment for me. Yeah, and I think you mentioned earlier that part of your interest, younger, were film, but also music, and that still obviously, I guess, plays out in some of the projects. One measure of that is, I think one of your latest docs profiles Ronnie James Dio, right? That's right. So, yeah, that's right. What, what attracted you to uh, to Dio? Just out of curiosity, then we'll and then we'll get to the bond in a sec. Yeah, yeah. No, I, thanks for for asking. I, no, I'm we're, I'm obviously you know I grew up listening to you know punk rock and heavy metal, and that was the foundational aspects of like who I am as a person is, you know, uh, shaped in large part by music and specifically like heavy metal and punk rock music. So, you know, Ronnie James Dio, when I was growing up was like, you know, I mean, he's like a God, you know, there's yeah. people that you posters you have on your wall and the lyrics that you listen to that help, you know, kind of get you through tough times and, you know, kind of cement your worldview on on things, you know, about how the world works and the injustices and that kind of stuff, which is, I think, at the core of, like, a lot of heavy metal and hard rock, like, a lot of questioning authority and things like that. So yeah. that was uh, such a big part of my life. And, and uh, you know, years we've done a lot of uh, documentaries in the music space, 
and uh, we got a call from uh, BMG. We did a film with uh, uh, with Live Nation about Imagine Dragons and Dan Reynolds uh, uh, called Believer, and it was like his kind of faith crisis going through being growing up Mormon and trying to reconcile his faith with his fan base, who is uh, a large part of their his fan base is gay. Uh, and so the, the, it became this really powerful you know, documentary mm. uh, and, and, you know, did really well. It was on HBO and, and got out there. And then through that, uh, BMG Films had reached out. They'd seen Believer and uh, asked me if, you know, they, they said they were very interested in working with us on projects and pitched us a couple of things that weren't the right fit. And then I got an email from the executive there, uh, Kathy, who had said, um, you know, any interest in a Dio documentary? And I literally, like, it within a matter of, like, seconds wrote her back like in all caps with like a million exclamation points like yes 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 you know oh, wow. so obviously Dio is such a big uh, I was a huge such a huge fan of his and the, the idea of being able to uh, you know kind of tell his story uh, was just kind of a bit of a once in a lifetime opportunity so uh, that's how that came to be yeah. and, and um, you know music is, is still such a huge part of uh, the types of projects that we look for you know um you know, bio, biopics, things like that, that are uh, things that we're passionate about. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen the film yet, but a uh, hundred years ago when I was a music journalist, the LA Times had me do a, a few different things on Dio, including once going out to his house to interview him. And his house, of course, as you would expect, it had like a castle look to it. Yeah, it's Encino. It That's where we, we filmed in, in his... Uh in its own. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, I, the thing that was so struck by is just what an interesting guy and what an incredibly smart guy he was. Yeah, I mean, I was very, sort of bl blown away. Yeah. So, uh, and, and a career, his career really does span the history of music. I mean, he started out doing doo-wop, you know, he was singing before the Beatles came out. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he's had that long of a career and, uh, was in, you know, obviously with Rainbow, with Richie Blackmore, and then Black Sabbath after Ozzy, and then his own thing. I mean, the guy's had four incredible careers. Yeah. Well, whether whether you're a deal person or not, you have to say that that guy has some had some incredible pipes. I mean, there's just no oh such such. Oh, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So cool. So this is Talking Animals on w, WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Don Argot, co-director of The Bond, a four-part wildlife series now streaming on Discovery+. Plus. The Bond examines the singular uh, animal-human connection forged across four folks and critters from disparate backgrounds and regions across the world. The four animals include a kangaroo, a dolphin, a goat, and a cheetah. If you'd like to ask Don a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So I guess you just kind of described how the deal thing came, came about. I guess you guys have been doing this long enough and obviously well enough that you probably get approached about all kinds of projects. So I'm just curious, in, in particular, how you decided to do the bond or how that opportunity came to be presented to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, we've been doing it for a long time, as you said, and and know obviously a lot of uh, you know people in, in the space, producers and distributors, all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, Glenn Zipper, who we worked with on uh, Cat People, he created yeah. a show called Cat People on Netflix, and we uh, and we have known Glenn for a number of years and been looking to work together in some capacity uh, for, for a while now, and he had approached us about, uh, in knowing that we, Sheena and I are indeed cat people ourselves, and we had, at one point, we had five cats. Okay. Uh, now, sadly, we only have uh, one cat. Oh, wow. Uh, of, Yikes. Of five. Yeah. Uh, he's our last one, standing 20 years in, and, uh, but, so, yeah, we, we love cats, and uh, Glenn knew that, and he has, he's the dog person, he created the show Dog. Right did really well on Netflix and he was doing the spinoff called cat people. And we, uh, uh, thankfully he, uh, he knew that we were cat people and asked us if we'd be interested in directing a few episodes. So we ended up doing two episodes of that. And then after that experience, uh, you know, he had reached out a few months later and said, Hey, I'm developing something with Susan Downey and Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and we're looking for a director for just for the whole series of these four episodes, which you guys be interested in, of course, uh, you know, aside from, uh, film and music, you know, animals are probably our top three things that we love and care about. So it was, it was no brainer. Yes. For us in that, in that 
respect, and that's how um, this, that's how we got involved in it. And yeah. it was knowing that these had to be, you know, kind of 48 minutes long, uh, you know, that we had to find stories that had a lot of, like, you know, a lot of story to them, right? Yeah. Now, aside from, like, oh, isn't that a cute, uh, you know, animal and person relationship for after the first <laughs> five minutes? Yeah. If it doesn't go anywhere, it's like, all right, well, what, what am I watching? Now what? Yeah. That was the hardest part, frankly, was finding the stories and the characters that really did have, you know, enough going on to sustain, you know, a 48-minute uh, show. And, and-, uh, and so that. Yeah. Oh, no, so I was going to say, so I was going to ask, so to what extent were you guys involved in, in the process of, of selecting the four stories featured in the Bond from what I presume was a larger pool of potential Bond stories, right? Was there a matter of... Yeah, yeah, we we were involved in every step of it. I mean, it was all a collaborative uh, effort. There wasn't one person saying, like, oh, we should do this story. It was like we had, you know, we had a, a casting company that had kind of cast a pretty wide net and... Uh, found us uh, a lot of diverse stories from around the world. And then we had basically a checklist of things that we, they all needed in order to kind of advance to the next, you know, round of like, or who stays and who goes. And as we started to whittle down our, our checklist, it was like, there, there was frankly uh, not a lot, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot left to, to that needed that had all the things that we knew that we needed yeah. in order to tell a compelling long form story. I mean, if you're doing like a 20 minute or a half hour short, then the criteria becomes a little less restrictive. But sure. with this, knowing that there, there needed to be a lot of story, uh, that, that was something that we wrestled a lot with in picking the stories that we ultimately ended up choosing. And was one of the items on the checklist, some international stories, or is that just because these stories happen to check other things on the uh, criteria? Yeah, yeah, there was, yeah, it was, it was, there wasn't a, uh, uh, that wasn't a, a prerequisite, but it was just the, I think, the function of, like, you know, casting that wide net and just seeing what, uh, you know, because we knew it didn't matter where the stories were. We just knew that they needed to, you know, have all these, these other elements that yeah. we needed in order to tell the best stories. So, and I'm glad that they're all around the world and they're not just, like, centered in one one spot or one area. Yeah, know? no, because it really does, uh, yeah, and it just inherently suggests how universal sometimes a connection between a, uh, one or more humans and an animal can be so for Absolutely. sure so is there a like a framework or fundamental structure for telling the stories in the bond like i want to be careful about spoilers but after watching the first two films i thought what all four might well have in common after i watched others would be some sort of either a tragic story or tough reversal part way through and then it turns out that wasn't the case at least after watching the third piece so uh, i still haven't seen the fourth one yet but uh, but were there were there was there something about the way you wanted to tell the story i mean i know obviously it had to reach a certain length just i guess probably for uh, the sake of the discovery plus uh streaming element but um right. were, were there other things about trying to tell the story that you were looking forward to, to put into each one or were they all just approached separately and just inherently told those particular- I, I mean i yeah, I think it was like somewhere in the middle of that. Obviously, you know, the, the, any diversity and obstacles that you have to overcome is inherent in good storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want just a story that's just like, uh, here's my kangaroo, and we hang out, and we watch TV every day, <laughs> and, and yeah. there's nothing much to the story. So yeah. uh, knowing that the, the things that we were attracted to were really some kind of present-day component because Again, making documentaries and, and working in documentaries, you know, we've done all different kinds of, of storytelling. And I think that there's obviously stories that have happened in the past that, uh, you know, are you have to go and kind of recreate moments uh, and, and, you know, bring the audience along about what happened already that we, you know, cameras weren't there to capture. And then, uh, you know, what what story has like some kind of like, compelling narrative thrust that we can be a that we can be truly documentaries about like be uh, you know following something happening uh, in front of us so i think those those were the things that we were looking for more than anything which yeah like, obviously we knew they were going to have stories that uh had a historical aspect to them like things that had happened in the past that you know kind of propel where they're headed into the future but that the the ratio needed to be all right well, we know we have the first act of this film uh, sorted because we know what the backstory of this, you know, th- this story is. 
in terms of you know the relationship, the relationship with the yeah. animal, how that came about, what they had to overcome, and now the rest of it is okay. What are we doing to like watch uh, unfold? You know, so that those were the things that we were really um, you know kind of conscious of. Yeah. conscious of and include into and how long that makes me wonder like how long did the production period span because some stories encompass what what seems like at least a long time like just by virtue of incorporating some significant events that that happened at one point or another but w was there an overall window that you guys were working within to pull well, the stories we, we had we had parameters of of production days i mean we basically tried to make yeah, we were in like the 10-day production per, per episode, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot of time. But, it, you know, when you know how to tell stories and, and you know wh what you have to work with going into it, it's, you have to make the most of those, uh, of those days. And, um, you know, that, so, so that, the, the one component of it. And then there was COVID uh, of it all that, that, you know, we were doing this in the middle of a pandemic, uh. Uh, which, which a lot of uncertainty uh, from week to week, from month to month, about when we could travel or when we, you know, what might be able to even, if we couldn't personally be there, uh, you know, what country like Australia, for example, they were on lockdown, so we couldn't even get remote crews out there to like do to do filming because that country was in lockdown. Let alone like us being able to travel there, the yeah. people in the country could do anything. So there was a lot of, you know, as as we all have had to adapt in this time of, of the pandemic, uh, you know, us as in the production community, you know, we've all been battling how we do the work that we do. You know, we are used to traveling a lot. We're used to kind of like, you know, being able to do whatever we want when we want to do it. And this was like a, a real kind of slap in the face of like, not so fast, like, no, yeah. you can't, you have to figure this out. Right. Uh, it, it, it was a lot of like, all right, when can we do this? And, you know, how can we do this? And, like, so, you know, a, a already kind of, like, you know, fairly compressed, uh, you know, production schedule, you know, just gets spread out over a longer period of time, which in a lot of ways does work for your, the story, because you yeah. just go on one day and capture all the stuff you need and then be done. You know, you want to feel like there's a story that you're tracking. So it's a couple of days here and then a couple of days here and then, you know, five days in Turks and Caicos to kind of wrap, you know, finish out the story of uh in that instance the, the 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 dolphin story yeah um but but that that all of them took several months uh you know uh, to a year frankly okay when we started that yeah because when you first said 10 days i thought uh, before you mentioned covid i thought 10 days over scattered over what period of time because it feels like at least a couple of those encompass so much so many stories uh, troubles uh tragedies you know concerns whatever they might be that i thought this, this seems to span some of them at least like a really long time so uh sounds like yeah those 10 days definitely were in, in some cases at least really sprinkled over a, a sizable period Sizable, yes, very yeah. sizable. <laughs> yeah. So, talk to me about some of the <clears throat> beyond COVID, which obviously would would be the biggest challenge, of course. But talk to me about some of the logistics and challenges as director of shooting this series. For example, you mentioned Turks and Caicos a moment ago. So, shooting in the Bahamas, mostly on or in the water, for the story about Jojo the dolphin. Like, what yeah. what, what, what what sort of challenges did that specifically present? Well, I mean just. Shooting on a boat in general is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and then uh, shooting on a boat in, you know, 100-degree heat uh, every day looking for a dolphin in an ocean feels like <laughs> this is where we, we all must have gone insane. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no way that we're going to find a dolphin in this gigantic ocean. And then, lo and behold, uh, you know, not to spoil anything, but, you know, it, it, we, we get the moment. And, uh, you know, that's what you do it for, those yeah. those things. That's why that's the value and that's the uh, the beauty of documentary is, uh, is is bringing you into these worlds, introducing you to characters, and then, you know, going on a journey, not knowing what's going to happen, but, you know, you're kind of hoping that the things that you want to have happen do happen. And in that case, obviously, uh, it, it, it was great. And um, so, yeah, it, it was it was a really interesting time. It's frankly, it was a year, almost a year to the day. Our first day in Turks and Caicos was July twenty uh, sixth, which was yesterday. Oh wow! That we were that we were shooting that. So oh really? Wow. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. It's, uh, so where, you know, day two is, I think, the day, which was today, this time last year, I think was the day that we found JoJo. So uh, that was, yeah. Yeah, because it's go. so interesting. Like, <laughs> that, unlike the kangaroo story, let's say, or whatever, Kantu, with a, a dolphin, that's part of the thing that's great about it is it's obviously a thousand ways different from a captive dolphin. And the the, the woman, the, the you know, the focus, the human focus of that story is really vehemently anti-captivity and whatever. But the point is, you are looking for a dolphin in the waters, the open waters. So that made me, that was one of the things I thought was like, when when actually on on screen, we're seeing like a, a search for, for Jojo, but I thought... What if, well, how much time would there be where the, you have to say, oh, my God, we, we're gonna, we have to wrap this up. We have to get this edited. We have yeah. to make a deadline, whatever it might be. And then, But we haven't found JoJo. So, you there's know, it just, of, yeah. a lot of pressure. There's a lot of inherent pressure in that because, you know, the other part of the story, which had nothing to do with our production schedule as much as it had to do with Jay's, you know, health situation, which was, you know, she was in the middle of uh, dialysis and chemo treatments. And, you know, she basically has these off weeks, uh, you know, like uh, like two weeks on, two weeks off uh, for the treatment. And yeah. we were going on an off week. So if we didn't get it in the five days that we were down there, well, then, you know, that's the story. And we obviously, you know, probably would have, like, figured out how to go back again to get it because it's the last thing you want to do in a TV series uh, when you're promising seeing a dolphin is like not deliver on it. right yeah so, yeah <laughs> that blurry thing out in the water just trusts us as a dolphin but it might not look yeah, like a dolphin exactly. yeah yeah so there was a lot of pressure uh for sure and and obviously after day one uh of just driving you know for six hours on this tiny boat uh you start to feel like man we must have been crazy to think that we we're going to come down here and like see a dolphin yeah. Um, so, you know, about the end of that day, there's a lot of like, oh, what happens if we don't get stuff? And, you know, all the natural conversations. Yeah. But then, you know, that's, again, the beauty of, of this uh, entering into the unknown of making documentaries. It's like, you know. And sometimes you get lucky. Right. Sometimes you get lucky. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Don Argon, co-director of The Bond, a four-part series now streaming on Discovery Plus. The showcases four extraordinary animal-human relationships or bonds, mostly involving wild animals. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight five. So uh, along the way, apart from production challenges, and especially I'm going to guess the Bahamas thing had probably a, a higher degree of uh, uncertainty, challenge, uh, anxiety than probably the other stories. Maybe not. But um, but what did you find most intriguing or surprising about each of those four stories as you were shooting it and, and figuring out like, okay, here's here's how we're going to go with this. But but what were some of the things just because of those bonds, those extraordinary bonds that were, of course, at the center of, of the series to begin with, were the things that you thought, oh, my God, that's truly remarkable? Yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, all the stories um, really have that, that, really have something that you could latch on to if you're, especially if you're an animal person, and understanding that, uh, you know, the thing that I, I really took from this is clearly as a self-professed cat person, you know, I know how I feel about my cat. Uh, I see him as a part of our family. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's our constant, you know, he, he's, he's the one constant, you know, thing that we have in our life that you can count on is going to be there to love you unconditionally, you know, yeah. and that that's, as animal people, you know, I think we, uh, you know, we can relate to those relationships that we have with our, I, I hate the term pets, but, you know, whatever for yeah. shorthand, yeah. Our, our cats uh, and dogs specifically, they're domesticated. But I think, you know, what was beautiful about this and what was really kind of like, kind of affirming, frankly, to see that you, you know, the relationship that Ray has with Kanku is the relationship I have with my cat. And, and I think anybody who's a cat or a dog person or what, a rabbit, whatever, like more domestic domestic uh, pets that they have in their life, will see that strong bond in things that they're not used to uh, seeing. And it's the same. It's the connection that you have with something outside of your species. Yeah, uh, that's really 
uh, powerful and really resonant and really beautiful, you know, and, 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 and it really like, I don't know, to me, like, it's, it's just, uh, like such an incredible thing to, to witness, you know, when, when Kanku has his paw on, uh, Jay, that's not like, I mean, it's obviously a beautiful image, but that's powerful. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's a powerful yeah. image well, of, you know, you, you seeing like you're used to seeing two human hands holding. You're not used to seeing like, you know, an animal hand holding a, a human hand. And I, just that, that kind of stuff I just think is, is beautiful. And, and it, it gives you a little bit of hope for humanity. For sure. In, in times when a lot of times there's not a whole lot of hope sometimes. Well, and even before even getting a chance to see The Bond, which again is available now on Discovery Plus uh, for people who want to check out what we're discussing. But even just like a still image that I, I did in a couple of social media posts just to sort of promote that we'd be having this conversation today. There's a the picture I used was uh, Ray and Kanku basically hugging, and it's yeah. like I mean, so powerful. And, and then you, especially if you're first looking at it, and if you don't know it's a kangaroo, you're sort of looking at it thinking, "Wait, is that a kangaroo?" And it's yeah. like you know, all the more powerful when you realize, yes, it, yes, it is. And because you think, okay, a cat or a dog or whatever, like that's not uncommon to see that, but it's highly uncommon to see that kind of pose with a human and a, and a kangaroo. So absolutely, to, yeah. Absolutely. So and I, and I think for yeah go ahead no go ahead no I was gonna say I think uh, we are kind of you know building off of that thing I, I feel like one of the things that I feel a lot of times especially in the world that we live in right now is you know we've gotten so far away from just you know things that are that are beautiful and important and you know we have gone down a lot of paths in this country and in this world frankly that were you know we can now look back and be like man we we really went down the wrong path you know like. We probably should have like stopped that at some point and turned around and like re, re you know reworked it. And I think that you know these relationships that we're all we're all in this together. I mean, we really are, you know. And, it, and it would t sometimes it takes you know events, that, you know, some sadly catastrophic events to realize that like wow, you know, like we we all really are, should be in this together more, and we should be like you know figuring out how to work together and be together more as opposed to like be be apart and like highlight our you know, everything that we're different uh, that's about us and our ideologies and, so, and things like that. But I do feel like the same thing with, with animals, you know, like, you know, certainly with the way that we've, you know, domesticated cats and dogs is something that is standard now. And I'm not saying that, like, these relationships that we, uh, of wild animals, we should, like, you know, move forward and, like, try to figure out how to create more, you know, forced bonds in a way. But, like, you see it in the kangaroo, like, they are we're, they're all sharing the land together. They're all part of the same ecosystem, you know. Yeah. What I mean? And and yeah. like, and we, I think we feel as humans that we're superior, and that because we we can, you know, kind of build walls and cr create the environments that are ours. You know, everything's ours. And it's just when you get into uh, specifically the Australia story, it's like no, this is our this is the land that we all inhabit, and then we all have to figure out how to like coexist. Uh, you know, with each other and, and Ray's bond with, uh, with, with Cancun is incredible, but, you know, should it be so incredible? You know what I mean? Yeah. Part of the reason it's so incredible is because that, that, that's a relationship that, you know, people that, in that country specifically, you know, the half of the population views kang kangaroos as rodents. As yeah. That should be exterminated. And, you know? and not so, to mention kind of wild and dangerous when they get to be Cancun's uh, size. So. Exactly. There's that element. But, yeah, part of what was important, which I made a point of mentioning at the top of the show about that story, is that uh, Ray is running a, a kangaroo sanctuary, and so rescuing, rehabilitating, and then they're set free, as as was Cancun, if I'm not mistaken. So what's interesting is that he just decided to stay. But, I mean, the point that I think is significant there is that it was his choice. Like, like all the other kangaroos, he was fixed up, rehabilitated, ready to go. And just chose not to. It was free will that he stayed there, and and then just this partly already this, this bond maybe was well underway with Ray, but he stayed partly because he did have this bond and he didn't want to go, but he could have he could have left yeah, at any and point. Also saw, and also saw something in Ray as a you know somebody who is part of his mob mm -hmm. that is there to help his you know his uh, fellow kangaroos. You know yeah, I mean? like. 
We, we, I think we project a lot of things onto animals sometimes. We anthropomorphize, uh, yeah. you know, uh, things with our animals because we want them, we, we want to feel that they're feeling something and we sure. think they're, they're feeling something, you know. And when you see it, and I think again, this, the series does show that these, you know, incredible bonds and relationships exist. And, and there's, these aren't the only stories that are like that, but these are the stories that I feel like, you know, exemplify that, we can have strong bonds outside of our, you know, our own species, and maybe we should pay more attention to, you know, that we're that we're not the most important part of the food chain. You know, yeah. Well, with that in mind, we're just sort of nearing the end of our time, Don. But you know, Glenn Zipper has been on the show a couple of times, so I, I tend to ask him this when he's been on about dogs or cattails or whatever. So, are there more uh, bond stories kind of in the offing? Do you think? Well, listen, I, I, I got to say, you know, when we uh, when we finish this this season, you know, we, we did talk about like, Oh, it'd be amazing to, um, you know, to get another season going. Uh, because I think this is something that, uh, we certainly had a blast doing. And I think that there are no shortage of incredible stories in this space. And I think they do resonate with people. And, uh, so it really is going to come down to, you know, how well, uh, it's received on Discovery Plus and, you know, ratings and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't see. Know what the metrics are anymore. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, that all the more reason to, if you like the show, you know, spread the word, get it out there, you know, get more people to watch it because, you know, if, if it does well, I think the likelihood of a second season, you know, will, will be uh, more more possible. Gotcha. Cool. All right. We've been speaking with Don Argon. He's the co-director of The Bond, which is uh, streaming now again on Discovery Plus. And you can find out more about that by going to discoveryplus.com. You can also find out more about Don and his uh, production company and all the films that we sort of touched on a little, a few of those at the beginning of our conversation. That's 914pictures.com. So, Don, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Duncan, likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Kirsten Peak of the Humane Society of the United States discussing the HSUS operation removing some 4,000 beagles from a facility in Virginia where they were bred and sold to laboratories that conduct animal experimentation. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with Nate Bargatze in a piece called How to Get Bitten by a Snake in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Another place, I'd not, like, I'd, like, because I was at the airport and the guy was like, uh, I was like, I'm going to Honduras. He was like, what city? And I was like, I'm just learning right now that's not the name of the city. So... (laughs) Just wherever other people are going, probably. Let's just go there and figure it out. We get to the base, and the guy, he's like telling us about Honduras, and uh, he's like, you gotta be careful. He was like, uh, you got to really look out for snakes. There's a lot of venomous snakes here. So when you walk around, just keep an eye out. And he was like, now, if you get bit by a snake, uh, the best thing to do is then just go ahead and catch the snake and bring it so then we know, like, what snake bit you. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm pretty positive that's, like, exactly what you're not supposed to like. I've never seen that ever on Animal Planet. Like, something gets bit, and then they got to be like, now I got to get it. Uh, I was like, I'm not going to do it. I was like, that doesn't make sense. I've never caught a snake in my life. And then when I get bit for the first time, I got to get it together and catch a snake. I was like, it's not going to go good, man. I was like, he's going to keep biting me. That's all that's going to happen. And he was like, it doesn't matter. Like, you've already been bit. And I was like, do you even know what a snake is? It completely matters. There's a huge difference between one bite and probably 30 bites. That's what we're going to be at if I try to catch this snake. Who told you this? A snake? Is that who told you to tell me all of this? Whose side are you on? That was Nate Pargazzi in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called How to Get Bitten by a Snake, taken from a performance of his on YouTube. Now it's time to speak with Kirsten Peake, 
from the Humane Society of the United States about their major operation underway to rescue and relocate 4,000 beagles. It's an enormous undertaking, obviously, and could probably use some support. We'll find out more about that in just one sec as we welcome Kirsten Peak to Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Good morning Kirsten. Kirsten? Oh, oh, okay. I didn't hear you there at first. Okay. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So what launched this rescue mission? How did it begin, basically? Yeah, so what led, and thanks so much for having me on, um, what led to this transfer plan was a lawsuit by the Department of Justice related to um, alleged Animal Welfare Act violations um, against Indigo, the breeding facility. Um, so repeated federal inspections resulted in dozens of violations, including findings that some dogs had been euthanized without first receiving anesthetic, um, inadequate veterinary care, insufficient food, unsanitary conditions. And so, um, yeah, our organization, the Humane Society of the United States, um, agreed to find placement uh, with shelter and rescue partners around the country for the approximately 4,000 uh, beagles at the facility in Cumberland, Virginia, over the next 60 days. Wow. So what was the initial reaction you and your HSUS colleagues had to the fact that it was 4,000? I mean, that just seems so staggering and, and probably daunting, too, when saying, okay, now we've got to remove these beagles, find homes for them, get this figured out, cleaned up, whatever. I mean, what was that initial response? Yeah, um, I think it took, at least for me, it took a minute to sink in because um, that's just, that's, I mean, that's an epic number. Um, it is a, you know, it's a, it is a feat of epic proportions. It's, yeah. It's a huge task, um, but excitement. I mean, it's, we're up for the challenge. And so I, I think for most of us, it was like, whoa, but then, okay, like, this is what, this is what we're like getting ready to do. And, you know, these are the outcomes that we hope for, for animals. So, um, yeah, excitement and, and just being, being up for the challenge, I think, but it's been, it has been a whirlwind of, of planning and coordinating and, and all sorts of stuff over the past several weeks. Um, Cause we've been, working on, you know, arranging with rescue partners, um, you know, who can take animals, how many they can take, when can they pick up. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes before um, we were able to even get hands on dogs and start actually physically placing them, which we started doing last week. And I, given that we're talking about 4,000 or more beagles, I assume the operation has to kind of tackle, uh, as part of the organization you just mentioned, a certain number of dogs at a time, like, okay, we'll just mm-hmm. take these, this group has agreed to take 200, this is this group hopefully will take three or 400. Is that is that how you're just kind of doing it piecemeal? Because I don't see how else you could wrap your right. uh, arms around it otherwise. Yeah, so we're doing them in batches. Um, So the first transfer, which took place last Thursday, we removed um, 432, and they were um, divided up among several rescue and shelter partners. And then we got more of them yesterday. So to date, um, I mean, in less than a week, we've removed approximately 900 um, and divided them up, yeah, among... um, uh, more than a handful of shelter and rescue partners who, you know, stepped up to, to open their doors to these animals. And is there kind of a triage situation, like how you decided that first 432 and then the remaining almost 500 or whatever, the next round? Is is there a way that you're saying, okay, these dogs kind of need to get out soonest or needs help soonest medically, or, or how, how are you yeah. making that determination? Um, so we prioritize first requesting... Um, the release of nursing mother dogs and um, unweaned puppies because their immune systems are the most susceptible. And so getting them, you know, into a, um, a good, comfortable environment is, is critical ASAP. Um, So we, we prioritize starting with the most immune susceptible dogs and, and then we're moving on from there. Um, uh, to get the rest of the population. Yeah. Now, I know this isn't our focus for today, but I'm sure many people uh, who've become aware of this story, even if some have just become aware of it now as we've talked about it, may be struck uh, or struck anew in some cases by how often beagles are used in animal testing. Any 
just brief, any observation or thought about that uh, that you might want to offer? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, animal experimentation is not really my expertise. We do have a department that focuses on yeah. animal research issues. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised. I, I have noticed, um, you know, in working on this operation, a lot of the, the general public wasn't aware that beagles are, I mean, getting tested on, you know, as as we speak, um, yeah. are used in animal research. So. I think it's been eye-opening for people um, yeah. because, you know, beagles are people like they, most people think of beagles and think those dogs belong on a couch. They belong, you know, in our homes being family members. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's really struck a chord with a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, I think a lot of people may not realize how commonplace that is. And I guess it's partly, I guess, mm-hmm. their temperament or disposition or whatever. But it's like... Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of an added uh, horror of, of this story. I think uh, that the, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about four thousand beagles. I mean, four thousand any dogs would have been bad, but I mean, it just seems like it keeps being beagles. So it's obviously, I think this project sounds like a massive undertaking and probably expensive too. Lots of resources involved from HSUS and others. So if someone listening wants to support this effort, where would they direct any kind of donation they might be able to make? Um. Both for donations and information, um, I suggest people start by going to our website, which is www.humanesociety.org mm-hmm. backslash 4,000 Beagles, because there people will be able to see um, also the list of shelter and rescue partners that yeah. are taking in animals. So you can, if there's one you know that is local to you or close to your heart for whatever reason, um, you can go to their website to either donate to one of the you know, organizations that will be directly placing the animals, or you can also inquire directly through them about okay. um, adoption. Yeah. So I... That's the place. place Yeah, and I went there earlier, and there was also a little pop-up thing about how to donate. So that that seems like that's the place to go, no matter what you're interested in or how you might be able to help. So, Mm -hmm. so thanks, Kirsten. I think we have just about run out of time now, but thank you so much. We've been speaking with Kirsten Peak from the HSUS about their uh, rescue operation with the four thousand beagles, which again you can check out, find out more at humanesociety.org backslash four thousand beagles. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Scott Elliott is up next after five minutes of NPR News. We'll be back next week with two filmmakers. done an interesting documentary called Free Puppies, chronicling dogs being transported. It's WMNF Tampa.